Well, if that has ever been you in the gym, please stop. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to kill yourself. Okay. Find someone who knows what they're doing so they can help you out uh, from that catastrophe that you, that you just saw. My name's Clayton Walk. I'm the lead pastor here of the city church. We are honored that you're here today. If you're visiting us, if you're a college student, brand new to Lubbock, we are honored uh, that you're visiting us today. We are starting a new series today called Yoked. It's not about physical fitness, uh, but we are going to make fun of people who get yoked like everything we just saw in this series for sure. What we're going to be talking about in this series is the unhealthy attachments. The Bible uses the word yoke, the unhealthy attachments, the things that we have yoked ourselves to, whether it be people, habits, systems that might be holding us back, maybe even ruining our lives. You see, wrong alignments, assignments and attachments will always cost you more than you wanted to pay and will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. I'm going to say that again. Wrong alignments, assignments, and attachments will cost you more than you wanted to pay and always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. So in this series, we're looking to the scripture, to God's word, to help us avoid and maybe even walk away from these unhealthy attachments, these things that we have yoked ourselves to. Because the Bible is clear. If you want to experience God's best in your life, then you have to do things God's way. And the great news this morning is that you can experience God's best in your life, regardless of how messed up your life has been to this point. You can still experience God's best if you will humble yourself and begin to do things God's way. In seventh grade, my wife, Darby, and I met each other at Irons Junior High, Miss Woodfin's English class. We became great friends in middle school. And uh, in ninth grade, we started going out for the first time, right? And uh, we had talked, we had become great friends. And so it's just a natural progression for us to go out. And so we were always talking on the phone, talking at school. But when we started going out, I stopped talking to her completely. I don't know why. It's because I was an introvert, uh, because I was scared of her. I was scared of girls. I, I was just self-conscious. I was just scared, right? And, and so we stopped talking. Well, as you can possibly probably imagine, that didn't go too well for me, okay? It didn't go too well. That summer, after we've been going out for a few months, I'm outside mowing the yard, and my mom brings me the portable phone. Now I know none of you know what a portable phone is, okay? But it was a cordless phone that you still was kind of attached to your house. And there was a station where it charged and it had a landline that, that's a physical cord that went from the wall of your house into this base and this is where the phone was, but the phone didn't have a cord. And, and so you could take it anywhere in your house, but it wasn't a cell phone, okay? It was like a cell phone, but it wasn't a cell phone. And so my mom brings me the phone outside, I'm mowing the yard and I answer the phone. I said, hey, this is, this is Clayton and this person, this girl, on the other end of the line says this, hey, this is Darby. And I'm like, there's not Darby, okay? Uh, but I just kind of play along. I just kind of go along with it because I, I know what's about to happen. She had her friend call and act like it was her and break up with me, all right? I know, super low, couldn't even do it herself, okay? So she calls me, her friend calls me, acts like it's her, breaks up with me, and what do I do? Total dude, I act like everything's fine, everything's cool. 
yeah, that's fine. It's cool. You know, it doesn't affect me at all. Right. Right. But I'm, I'm crying on the inside, but I'm acting all cool and brave and tough on the outside. Yeah. Well, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Let's be friends. Yeah, totally. Mutual decision. Right. Yeah. This is mutual. Okay. We're just going to be friends. It was better like that. So we break up that summer. I start praying and crying out to God for puberty to hit me like never before. Cause I was still short. Okay. I was still small. I'm praying, God, let me grow. Let me grow in Jesus name this summer. Let me get, let me get taller. Okay. And I'm going to show her, she's going to regret it. Okay. I'm going to start doing push-ups. I got many bottles of sun in and just use that sun in like a champ that summer. Okay. And I turned my hair from brown to blonde. Okay. So I, I come back from that summer after she had her friend break up with me and I'm taller. The Lord answered my prayer. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm in better shape. I've got blonde hair. I walk into 10th grade math class. Darby's already in that class. And I walk into that class and she said the heavens open and she realized that dude is hot. He is fine. I made a huge mistake. All her words, not mine. Zero embellishment there. Okay. All her words, not mine. She realized she made a huge mistake. Okay. And she wanted me back and I wouldn't take her back. You know, no, I'm just kidding. But, but my wife in junior high and especially in high school was, was pretty popular. Okay. She's going to be really upset that I told you this, but she was the prom queen and the homecoming queen. Okay. That tells you just kind of how popular and how well liked she was. All right. I was neither, okay? I wasn't even close. I wasn't even the same stratosphere as my wife in high school. So in, in high school, we went to a homecoming together, but I was really in the friend zone, okay? She, she really put me in the friend zone in high school uh, and, and the, first part of, the first part of college. So we, we graduate, we go to tech, I move out, I'm living with some friends at this house. Uh, she's over at this house. A lot of other people are at this house. We're outside in the front yard. We're all talking. We're all hanging out. I'm in the friend zone and I have no idea what came over me. Okay. Cause this is so out of me, out of my character, out of my personality. We're all standing around talking with all these people. She's standing there. I'm talking, I'm looking at her. I'm like, I got to get out of the friend zone. Right. And, and so I go over to her. I grab her by the arm. I kind of pull her in. I lean in, I whisper in her ear. And from that day forward, she never saw me the same again. Okay. And you're like, some of you guys are like, dude, what'd you say to her? I got to get out of the friend zone. Okay. That's private. All right. That's private between Darby and I. Okay. But, but I whispered in her ear and she said from that moment on, she saw me differently. And she realized very quickly that we started dating. We got engaged. She realized pretty quickly that I was the one. I was the one that she was looking for. And my question for you today is this, what are you looking for? What should we be looking for in the one? What, what should we be looking for? That, that's the first question. The second question is this though, should we be even looking at all? And then the third question for you is this, if you're married and you thought you found the right one, but the right one really doesn't feel or seem like the right one anymore. You thought you found the right one, but you're not so sure anymore. What does that mean? And what do you do when the right one didn't make everything all right? And so what now? So if you got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
What are we looking for in the one? Should we be looking at all? And what happens if the right one didn't make everything all right? Second Corinthians chapter six. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. I'd also encourage you now though to download our app, the City Church Lubbock, and you can click message notes and follow along with me there. All the verses, the points are there and you can even fill in the blank as we go with the words that'll be on the TV in all caps. That's a great way to kind of just lean in and participate, not be a passive observer, but really be an active participant in our time together. And I promise if you do that, you're gonna get a lot more out of our time together. So let's go. Second Corinthians chapter six, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says this in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We'll come back to that here in just a second. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That, that, that was a, a, a Jewish word in the first century that would refer to Satan generically, just anything worthless, but they began to use it as a term or a name for Satan in first century Judaism. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, Paul says, we as followers of Jesus are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. To a Jewish Christian, that would have absolutely blown their minds. I'm the temple of the living God. The, the, the temple was a place where the presence of God dwelt, where sacrifices were made on behalf of the nation of Israel so that they could be forgiven of their sin. And based on those blood sacrifices, those priests, those high priests would then walk into and go into the Holy of Holies and into the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt and they would speak with God and God would speak with the high priest on behalf of the people. And it was through the temple that the scripture says God dwelt dwelt among his people so that he would be their God and so that they would be his people. And it was through the temple and it was through the sacrifices that were made there and the priests that would go into the most holy place and speak with God and God would speak with them. And it was through this that Israel was in relationship with God. But now Paul says, as was prophesied, there's a new covenant. And in this new covenant, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God comes to live and dwell inside of you. And so now you, Paul is saying, are the temple of the living God if you were a follower of Jesus. God, through the Holy Spirit, lives and indwells you. At that moment that you gave your life to Jesus, a miracle happened in your heart. You went from being dead in your sin and an enemy of God to God raising you spiritually from the grave, from death. Now you're alive in Christ. You've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And Paul says now in the new covenant, you, Christian, are the temple of the living God where God's spirit lives and dwells. And so Paul says, what, what agreement could there be between the, the temple of God and with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and giving you a desire and a passion for holiness and righteousness and for the spiritual things of heaven if you're a follower of Jesus. And so based on that, Paul says, if you're the temple of the living God, you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He says this, so then what partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness? Paul's saying, if, if you're the temple of the living God, you have the Holy Spirit, you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in right and wrong. 
And you believe that by obeying God's word and practicing God's word and putting God's word into practice, you are doing the right things. That, that God in his word has given us a ultimate absolute standard of right and wrong. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you believe that and you desire now to live a righteous and holy life. But now you've got this absolute standard of right and wrong in God's word. You see, a Christian who has the Holy Spirit would say that the word of God is a lamp to their feet and a light unto their path. And so they live all of their life through the lens of the scripture. They believe the scripture, like Paul said, is God breathed, all of it. And so to disbelieve or disobey anything in the scripture is sin. It's to disbelieve or disobey God. And so a Christian who has the Holy Spirit through the word of God desires righteousness and holiness. And so Paul says then next, so then what fellowship can light have with darkness? Light is a symbol of truth in the scripture. So then what fellowship could light someone who believes in the word of God as the absolute standard of, of, of right and wrong? What, what fellowship could someone that believes that have with someone who is in darkness, who has no absolute standard of right and wrong? Who Jesus said, doesn't wanna come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So, so what fellowship could there be there? He says, what accord does Christ have with Belial? Christ with Satan, there is no accord there. There is no common ground. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That, that's another word for common ground. What common ground then is there between a believer in Christ and an unbeliever? What agreement then could the temple of God have with idols? You see, if you're not a believer in Jesus, then you believe there, there's no God. And that makes you at the top of the food chain. That means I'm God and I do what's right in my own eyes. There, there, there is no God above me if I'm an unbeliever. So that puts me in the place of God. So then I'm the standard of what's right and wrong and I do what's right in my own eyes. And, and so what Paul is saying here is if you're a follower of Jesus who has the Holy Spirit, you love the truth of God's word. You love the, the light of, of absolute truth and it guides and directs your life. How could you have any common ground with an unbeliever who, who doesn't believe that, who believes they are God and does what is right in their own eyes? And some of you are here, maybe you are an unbeliever and you're like, that, that's kind of mean or rude. I would ask you the same question. What common ground would you have with the believer? who believes in the absolute truth of God's word, who believes that when you die, you go to spend eternity with God in heaven, or if you've not given your life to Jesus, you go to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell as a punishment for your sin. Why, why would you want to be with or in partnership with, in fellowship with, in this kind of relationship, this yoked to? And that's the key here. That's what Paul's saying. Believers and unbelievers can't be yoked together. And what Paul is talking about here is a teammate. You're looking for a teammate, someone who's on the same page, who wants the same things. Paul is using a word yoked that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, which says this, do not plow a field with an ox and a donkey harnessed together. Don't plow a field with an ox and a donkey 
harnessed together. The, the old school translations would say, uh, don't plow a field with an ox and an ass harnessed together. And so one of the commentators on 2 Corinthians 6 talks about and refers to the donkey as the ass, but what he says here is very important, is very powerful for you to understand what's going on here and why this relationship between a believer and an unbeliever in a yoked sense just does not work. Watch what he says about Deuteronomy 22, verse 10. An ox and an ass being of different species and very different characters cannot associate comfortably nor unite together cheerfully in drawing a plow or a wagon. So, so they can't unite together cheerfully for a common purpose. They can't do it. The ass being much smaller and a step shorter, there would be an unequal and irregular draft. So they'd get taken off course. Besides, the ass from feeding on coarse and poisonous weeds has a fetid breath. It's got bad breath because he eats weeds which its yoke fellow, the ox, seeks to avoid, not only is poisonous and offensive, but producing leanness, or if long continued, even death. And hence, it has been observed always to hold away its head from the ass and to pull only with one shoulder. So this commentator's saying they wouldn't put a donkey and an ox together because the donkey's got bad breath and the ox is gonna turn his head and he's gonna pull like this and it's gonna drag them both off course. And Paul uses that word yoked. An unbeliever and a believer can't be yoked together because one is going to drag the other off course. So here's the big idea. Don't yoke an ass, all right? No, I'm just kidding. That's not the big idea today. It's not the big idea. Don't, don't post that or anything like that, okay? They'll be like, I don't know. Maybe people are like, that's cool. What church you go to? So, so maybe go ahead and post it. Who cares? Uh, but no, we, we, we can't be yoked with an unbeliever if you're a believer because one's gonna drag the other off course. It's poisonous. It's deadly to a relationship because you've got radically different values and you've got a radically different purpose in life. And so Paul says, believers and unbelievers, they, they can't be yoked together. You see, whether you realize it or not, if you're, if you're single or maybe single again, you probably realize this more than the rest of us, but you're always dating to mate. You're always dating to mate. Whether you realize it or not, you're always dating to mate. So whether you're considering a first date or a forever mate, the question you've got to ask is, is this person going to be a good teammate? Whether it's a first date or forever mate, the question you must ask yourself, will this person be a good teammate? And Paul says a good teammate in verse 14 starts with someone who's a believer. That's the very first consideration you gotta make. Is this person a believer? Are they a follower of Jesus? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, talking about men and women getting married. And he says, yes, get married, but only if he or she loves the Lord. Follower of Jesus, temple, who has the Holy Spirit. You got the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God with the Holy Spirit living inside of you. If you're considering marriage, Dating or marriage, only date or marry someone who loves the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to get drug off course. So you could say it like this. Run after Jesus, see who keeps up, and then introduce yourself. Run after Jesus. And then you look to your left and you look to your right. You see who's right there with you and you say, how you doing? What's your number? 
Let's go get coffee. Let's go, let's go eat dinner. You run after Jesus. You see who keeps up. And then you introduce yourself because you're not looking for someone you're going to have to drag to church one day. You're not looking for someone that comes to church because you want them to, or they promises you that one day we're going to go or next semester we're going to go. I promise we're going to go. Proverbs 14 verse 15 says this, only simpletons believe everything they're told. The prudent, the wise carefully consider their steps, not their promises, not their good intentions, not their potential. Fools believe everything they believe everything they're told. The wise, the prudent person carefully considers a person's steps. They carefully consider their own steps. You're a fool if you believe what someone tells you or promises you. But how many of you know that when you're in love, you'll believe almost anything you're told? Right? Those feelings, those emotions begin to cloud the truth and you, you want to believe what you're being told. And so when you're in love, you'll believe anything. Anything you're told. I promise I'm going to get a job. I, I promise I'm going to stop drinking. I promise I'm going to get out of debt. I promise I'm going to stop playing five hours of video games a day. I, I promise I'll move out of my parents' basement, right? I, I promise I'll stop looking at porn. I promise I'll never hit you again. When you're in love, it's easy to believe what you're told. But the scripture says a wise person considers their steps. You see, there's a myth in relationships and it's that promises and potential are a substitute for preparation, for steps. Promises and potential are not a substitute for preparation. I promise my recent past won't show up in our future marriage. I promise I'm gonna get more involved in church. I promise I'll be faithful. I promise I'll never leave you. You see, the problem in relationships is that people think they can promise their way past their lack of preparation, past their steps. And that's why if you're engaged or even considering getting married, I would advise you to take our premarital class. We have a new one starting up in January. You can sign up on our app starting now under signups but that's a great way to gauge and to prepare for that relationship. Most people prepare for a ceremony, but they're not preparing for a marriage. And so if you're single or engaged, I highly encourage you to take that class with us in the spring. So what are you looking for in the one, in the right person? Well, number one, you're, you're looking for pursuit and preparation, not promises and potential. A wise person considers steps Pursuit and preparation. Someone who's pursuing Jesus and someone who's taking the right steps because direction always determines destination. Promises and potential and intentions do not determine destination. Your steps, your direction, your preparation is what is determining your destination. So we're looking for pursuit of Jesus and we're looking for preparation, someone who's taking the right steps, not promises and potential. But some of us who've been married for a while would even tell you this that even finding the one, the right person, doesn't ensure everything is going to be all right. If 
Finding the right person doesn't mean that everything's gonna be all right and that it's gonna be happily ever after. When Levi was eight years old, he's 14 now, but when he was eight, we were in the car one day and he started freaking out and panicking about who he was going to marry. We're like, bud, you're, you're eight years old, okay? You don't have to worry about that. You got a long time to figure this out. But he's like, yeah, but you and mom met in seventh grade, so I could already know the person. I'm like, well, I mean, that's, that's weird, okay? We're weird, okay? Don't, don't, don't think about that, all right? Uh, so you just stop freaking out. Don't worry about it. And, and then we, got, we found out why he was worried about it because he said this next. He said, you know what I need to do? You know what I need to do? I need to get a Match.com profile because the commercial said, you can meet the perfect lady and it's guaranteed to work. So I need to get a match.com profile because that's where I'm gonna meet the perfect lady. And when I meet the perfect lady, when I meet the right one, it's guaranteed to work. Everything will be all right. Finding the right person doesn't mean, it doesn't ensure that everything is going to be all right. The right person myth extends into most marriages. The assumption of husbands and wives is if I could just get my spouse to act right, then everything would be all right. If I could just get them to act the way I want them to, then everything would be all right. Here's the odd thing though. These are the very same couples who married assuming they had met the right person to begin with. It turns out the right person doesn't always act right. So what do you do? Look in the mirror and work on yourself? Heck no. That's not what we do. No, we didn't do that when we were dating. So why start now? Instead, we go to work trying to fix our spouses and turn them back into the one, back into the right person. But here's what some of us have found out the hard way. It turns out the right person, the one, will never satisfy you because spouses make very bad saviors. Spouses make bad saviors. You were designed for a relationship with Jesus. He's the one your soul is looking for. How many of you have ever been hangry before? You're so hungry, you're getting bitter, you're getting annoyed, you're short-tempered, okay? Some of you are, are hangry right now and you're like, bro, I wish you'd shut up because I am hangry and I wanna go eat something, okay? Listen, I totally get it, me too, all right? I'm, I'm hungry too, all right? So, you're hangry though because you wanna eat, you're hungry and you haven't eaten anything to satisfy that hunger that you've got. And so you're hangry and so you act out. The same thing happens in relationships. We can be hangry in relationships, expecting that person to satisfy a hunger or thirst they were never designed to satisfy and they could never meet. And so the result is you're hangry in your relationship because you think that spouse or the right one should satisfy you and meet that thirst and meet that hunger. And when they don't, you get hangry. But Jesus said he is the one your soul is looking for. He's the living water, Jesus said, where if you drink from him, you'll never thirst again. He's the bread of life, Jesus said, where if you eat from him, you'll never be hungry again. So Jesus is the one that your soul is looking for. And until your soul meets Jesus and meets the one you are designed to do this life with and be in relationship with, you will be hangry in every other relationship until you meet the one, the right one, that you were designed to do this life with, and his name is Jesus. And here's what's incredible about Jesus. He didn't promise that he loved you. 
He didn't just say it. He proved it. The scripture says in Romans 5 verse 8 that even though we were enemies of God and separated from him, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place for our sin. God demonstrated his love for you. He didn't just promise it. He doesn't just talk about it. God demonstrated his love for you. And that's real love. It's a self-sacrificing demonstration and proof that I love you and that what you are after and what is best for you is more important than what I'm after and what's best for me. That's real love. And God demonstrated it by sending his son, Jesus, to die for you on the cross to pay your fine for sin. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place, to be your wrath bearer. It, the, at the cross, Jesus took all the wrath of God for your sin upon himself so that you could have your fine paid for, so that you could be set free, made right with God, all your sin forgiven, and know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Second Corinthians five says it like this. He who knew no sin, Jesus, it was perfect. He knew no sin, but came sin for us. He took on our sin and the fine for our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means right with God. And so when you give your life to Jesus, not when you've been good enough, not when you've been baptized, not when you've given enough money, not when you've attended enough times to make you a part of the club, when you give your life to Jesus, your sin is forgiven and you're made right with God. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision before, I invite you to do that today. Give your life to Jesus that your sin might be forgiven so that you can be made right with God and you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven, not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did for you on your behalf. Most people aren't too sure that if they were to die today, they would go to heaven. But the scripture says you can be 100% sure. Most people aren't sure because they're not sure they've been good enough to go to heaven. But Romans 10 says that's not God's way. Being good enough is not God's way to go to heaven. In fact, Paul said about the Jews, about the nation of Israel, they got it all wrong. Read Romans chapter 10. They got it all wrong. They thought God's way of making people right with himself was by giving us a standard that we would then have to live up to and be good enough in order to be right with God and go to heaven when we die. And Paul said that wasn't God's way. God gave us the standard of his righteousness and his holiness in the law so that we would see we don't measure up, so that we would see that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that we would see, I need a savior. I need a rescuer because I can't do it myself. And so Paul said, God's way of making people right with himself is that he came down to us. It's not about us going up to God. God came down to us and he took on flesh and he died in our place for our sin so that we could be made right with him. That's God's way. God's way is faith alone and Christ alone. And so give your life to Jesus today. Jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to Christ today if that is you. God demonstrated his love for you. He proved it. Like we sang a second ago, there's never been a king like that. There's never been a king like that who would come and die in your place for your sin. That's a king that I can worship. That's a king I'll give my life to. A king that gave his life for me. And Philippians 2 said, 
humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, who laid down his life for me. There's never been a king like that. And listen, you were designed by your creator to have a relationship with God through Jesus. And until your soul, the, the, the way your soul was designed and crafted by God meets its maker in Jesus, you're not gonna be satisfied and you're gonna be hangry in every other relationship. And so maybe while most people are trying to find the one, maybe the better question is, are you becoming the one? Everyone's looking for the one, but maybe the better question is, are you becoming the one? Because what if, what if you aren't the kind of person the one is looking for? That kind of hurts, doesn't it? What, what if you aren't the kind of person that the one that you're looking for is looking for? Everyone's looking for the one. But my challenge for you today is this, become the one, the one you're looking for is looking for. Everyone's looking for the one. I think a better question is, are you becoming the one? Are you becoming the one, the one you're looking for is looking for. Maybe instead of being so focused on looking, you should perhaps put more energy and time into becoming. How do you do that? How do you become the one? How do you stop looking for the one and become the one? Two things we said earlier, pursue and prepare. Pursue and prepare. Number one, we pursue Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. It wasn't one, two, three. It wasn't, you got to stop doing this, this, and this, and you got to start doing this, this, and this. No, Jesus said, follow me. So wherever you're at spiritually, whether you're an unbeliever or a new believer or a very mature believer, whether you've been away from God or you've been on fire for God, Jesus's invitation to you is today, follow me. Not one, two, three, follow me. And as you follow me, I will transform you from the inside out. This is the new covenant because you've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you and transforming you from the inside out. Follow me and I will turn you into the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband, the, 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 the wife, the mother, the father that I'm calling you to be. If you will follow me, I'm going to do something in you and through you you never thought was possible. So follow me me and I will transform you from the inside out. And here's what happens when you begin to follow Jesus and that transformation begins to take place. You begin to love the body of Christ because it's your family. It's your new family. You're a child of God. You've got a family of God, a new spiritual family. And so you begin to love the family of God, the bride of Christ, that's the church. And so you begin to get more committed to the family of God because you're getting more and more committed as a child of God. And so you begin to love the church, love the bride, and, and you begin to want to grow in, in your relationship with Jesus, with other followers of Jesus, because that's the way you were designed to grow spiritually. And so chances are, you're gonna get a lot more consistent at church, uh, not because you're a great church attender, but because you love Jesus and you wanna grow in your relationship with Jesus. And then chances are, you're probably gonna find yourself in a small group where other people are studying the scripture together and praying together and encouraging one another and there for one another and supporting each other. And then you're probably gonna start serving at your church. Why? Because Jesus came to serve and not to be served. And because you've got a spiritual gift that the Lord has given you 
as a follower of Jesus to serve the church, to help build up the church and to glorify Jesus. And so if you follow Jesus, these things are just gonna begin to happen in your life. You're gonna hate your sin. You're gonna be broken over your sin. You're gonna begin to love holiness and righteousness. You're gonna begin to love the spiritual things of heaven if you're a follower of Jesus. But if that's true, then let me ask you this. If you or the one is not committed enough to Jesus to be committed to his bride and to serve the bride, that's the church, why would you ever think that he or she will be committed to you and to serve you in the way that God has called them to as your spouse? I'm gonna say that again, because you can't miss this. If you or the one that you think is the one isn't committed enough to Jesus to be committed to his bride, that's the church, and to serve his bride, then why would you ever think that he or she will be committed enough to you or ever serve you the way they're called to? So, so here's what this practically translates into. I'm running after Jesus. I'm seeing who keeps up. I'm introducing myself. And here's where, what those people are going to look like. Here's some of the characteristics of some of those people who are running after Jesus and you're seeing them on your left and your right. They're keeping up and you're introducing themselves. They're gonna love the church. They're gonna love the scripture. They're gonna love their small group. They're gonna be serving in the church because they love Jesus, but because they're committed to the bride of Christ. And you're gonna start seeing a lot more of them because you're running after Jesus. You're loving the bride. You're loving the word of God. You're serving Jesus through your local church. And so you're gonna start seeing some of those people on your left and on your right. And then you're gonna introduce yourself. But becoming the one starts with pursuing Jesus. And then secondly, it's about preparing. It's about closing the gap between your promises and best intentions and your actual steps and direction. You see, intentions do not determine destination. Direction determines destination. A wise person considers their steps. And so to become the one, you've got to start preparing. You got to start closing the gap between your best intentions and your promises and your actual steps and direction. Or maybe you're married today and you're not sure if the one you chose is still the one. The challenge for you is the same, become the one. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter three, he said, you could win over an unbelieving spouse by your gentle spirit and kind heart. Without a word, Peter said, you could win over an unbelieving spouse. How much more so could you win over a believing spouse who's grown cold in their relationship with you with that gentle and kind spirit and with those prayers for them in Jesus' name without ever saying a word to them? Peter says, that's what our great and awesome and powerful God can do as you seek to become the one. We're not trying to fix the one to make them the right one. We're trying to become the one. We're seeking to become the one. We're pursuing Jesus and we are preparing and we are closing the gap, whether we're single, dating, married, divorced, remarried, we are becoming 
the one. And so instead of looking for the one or trying to fix your one, become the one. Become the one, the one you're looking for or the one you got is looking for. Now, maybe you're here today and you would say, man, I haven't been doing any of this. I'm not currently doing any of it. My dating relationships have been a mess. Maybe my marriage is a mess today. What do I do? Where do I start? I, I haven't been taking the steps. I haven't been preparing. I haven't been pursuing Jesus. What now? My dating relationships, my marriage are a mess. A couple of years ago, for the very first time, I learned that on our wedding day, July 26, 2003, Darby that morning went to go pick up my wedding ring from the store that she had bought it from. She had put a deposit down, she went to pick it up. She thought she could just take it and pay it out. And they were like, no, you, you can't. You gotta pay for it in full right now. She didn't have the money. She left sobbing. She went to First Baptist Church here in Lubbock, sobbing. She arrived sobbing. She didn't have my wedding ring for our wedding day that evening. She was so upset, total mess. She didn't prepare, she didn't plan. She didn't take the steps that she needed to take to be able to get that ring on that wedding day for our wedding ceremony. Well, her dad found out. And without telling anyone, he went and bought that ring, paid for it in full, showed up to the church, gave it to Darby. Happy wedding day. He paid for it. He paid for it in full. She, she was in a mess. I didn't even know about it until two years ago. She had a mess on her hands. She didn't prepare. She didn't plan. It was an absolute mess. And her dad stepped in and rescued her out of her mess. Listen, the great news today is that you've got a heavenly father who is in the rescuing from your mess business. So even if you haven't been taking the right steps, if your relationships, if your marriage is a mess today, I want you to know you've got a heavenly father who loves to show up, to show off, to demonstrate his power and to bring reconciliation and to bring your mess out of the darkness into the light to bring healing because he is an amazing God with amazing grace who doesn't give us what we deserve. I made an absolute mess out of Darby and I's relationship in high school in our first year of college, I made some terrible decisions that really hurt her. I didn't deserve her. But I'm thankful for an amazing God with amazing grace who rescued me out of my mess and gave me what I did not deserve. An amazing wife of 18 years now, three kids, something I never thought was possible with the decisions I had made because of the, all the wrong steps I had taken. But God in his mercy and his grace, like a great dad, rescued me from my mess when I didn't deserve it. And he can do the same thing for you. If you will humble yourself, cry out to him, 
I believe he can rescue you in your mess. But you gotta begin to do things God's way if you wanna experience God's best. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that right now in this moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would come and speak to us and ignite a fire in our hearts right now to become the one, the one we're looking for is looking for. God, give us a passionate pursuit of Jesus. God, help us by your spirit to prepare and to take the right steps to close that gap by your grace and with your power to close that gap between our intentions, our promises and our actual steps and direction that we're headed. God, I pray that right now, if anyone finds themselves in a mess, that you would rescue them out of their mess as they cry out to you for help right now. God, we thank you that you are in the saving, healing, restoring business. And so God, we pray for miraculous power in Jesus' name to bring healing and reconciliation and transformation, God, in each one of us. It's in your name we pray.